You better feed yourself well, have a good nutrition program, good body condition, uh, the wing to service, full feeding. Some people don't recommend that anymore. On the wing guilt, I think it's really important. And because it's hard to manage guilt versus other parity, we do it on all the cell. There's a bit of feed wastage. I've got that, but I'm a bit afraid when people say don't don't feed more than five, six pounds after after weaning. I, th- I think that extra one or two pounds you can give to those sow is really important. So all those things matter a lot. And I think the issue we have is labor. Yeah? So labor is really important. All the things I've talked about are often related to people that do the work. So we can have the best equipment, the best technology, the best semen concentration, the people that are doing the work. So the training of your people at the barn is really important. And it's not there. No pregnant sow, no pigs to wean. So I think the but it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You have to find a way to make things easy for them. Uh, not automated, but find a way to, like the PCI is a nice way to implement the process that's easy to follow for people. And once they get trained, it's working really well. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada, Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Ontario, and Demeter Quebec. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. The Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners Nutrition Group offer the full range of nutritional product based on extensive research and developments and a solid team of experts all across Canada. Our objective is to provide cost-effective solutions, innovation, and support to producer from the entire Canadian swine industry. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Swine Canada podcast. My name is John Patience, and I'll be the host for today's session. And I'm delighted to have a very distinguished guest with us today, Mr. Dan Boussier, who's with uh, Group Series in Quebec. How are you today, Dan? Very well. Thanks, John. Great. Well, thanks for being here and taking time out of your schedule, which I know is really, really busy. Um, and I'm sure that most people on the podcast today will know you or have at least heard your name. But maybe if I could ask you to just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today and then what your role in the pig industry is today in Canada and even globally, if you wish. Yeah. So, yeah. So I graduated in 1996 from Laval University in Quebec. Uh, been working in the swine industry since then. So all I know is swine. I never did anything else in my in my whole life. Uh, been working for feed company, genetic company. But the, the big change in my uh, path was uh, my the start of my business in 2004, uh, Group Serais. So with my partner, we founded the business, started from uh, nothing. We had no customer, nothing to, to, to start with. Uh, and we grew, I guess, a pretty good business over the last uh, almost 20 years now uh, doing that. So uh, my expertise is mostly swine nutrition and research. 
uh, and also business development. So uh, through the years in our business, we've been able to grow our feed business in Quebec, but also with partnership in Ontario and Western Canada. So today we've been in, we are able to feed about probably five and a half to six million pigs in Canada with our different partnership. Uh, huge relation with High Life, which a lot of people will know. High Life is a large integrator in Canada. I've been doing research and uh, supporting the nutrition team since uh, 2005. Uh, so yeah, so and our business is involved in production, uh, genetic. Uh, we also have a small packing plant now since two years and a half. So we know what it's like to to lose money in the packing business. <laughs> we, we, we hope we're going to know sooner than later how to make money. <laughs> but the last two years have been tough. Uh, but uh, we committed to start a packing plant in Quebec. So we're getting about half a million pigs a year right now. That's uh, the deed that we have. We want to go to a million a year within the next five years. That's uh, That's a project. But yeah, so we're involved in all areas of production, uh, nutrition, genetic, uh, and mostly involved in swine. Great. Very good. Okay. And I noticed that you have some involvement in uh, in China. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. I have some uh, business involvement in China. So I've been doing consulting for a group over there. But I can say the last two years and a half have been uh, much uh, different because we haven't been able to go to China. So the relation and consulting piece is uh, not the same as it used to be, but I used to go to China twice a year to do some uh, work with some group over there. Right on. Very good. Very good. Well, today we're going to talk about breeding management. Um, that was the topic that you chose quite appropriately, but I am going to ask you to start out. Uh, why did you choose breeding management, Dan? Why is that a topic that is of particular interest to you right now? Well, it's not just right now. So I've been involved in nutrition a lot. And I talk a lot about nutrition, so sometimes to go uh, outside of your uh, expertise is, is not bad. But uh, we did a lot of research on different aspects of reproduction uh, with pigs. Uh, when I say research, we did that with High Life, you know, to try to improve the process of, of breeding uh, through management, different technique, different product, the nutrition as well, which has an importance when you talk about reproduction. So I think it will be a, it was a good time to wrap up all the things we did over the last 15, 18 years on research. Uh, with some practical application for the producer on farm, because that's what we want. Eh? We want something that is able for the producer to apply on a day-to-day basis and improve uh, his reproduction process. Very good. Very good. So let's uh, let's get started and um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, your evaluation of semen extenders. I guess you've done some work in that area. Yeah, so we did a lot of work. As you know, there's a lot of different product available for a, a, a semen extender for diluting the sperm. Uh, and, and like I said, you know, when we talk about semen extender, we talk about the boar stud. At the farm level, those people don't see that too much. Right? They use a bottle of semen, they receive it, it's, it's, it's there, they use it. But the process at the boar stud using a different extender is very important uh, because that's what's made the semen of quality and be able to breed the sow and have a shelf life as well on the semen. Uh, so we did a lot of work on that. Every year, we probably evaluate one or two different products. And honestly, in 2013, we found probably the one that we're still using today. So 2013, 10 years ago, we we found the one that we are still using today uh, because at that time, that product made a difference in terms of litter size and conception rate uh, versus the one we were using before. And since then, we've been evaluating other extender and we never found one that was better. Some that were the same, you know, Um, most of the time we don't find big difference and it would be a shame to find big difference because, you know, to have a product that will create a big difference. Uh, it's because the other product is no good or this one is super good, but it's not the case. You know, all the companies are making a good job on that. 
so I think, you know, what we have found in 2013, we still use that extender. We even tested extender from the same company that are supposed to be the next generation, and they were no better, okay? Uh, they were not worse, but they were no better. So I think the extender is something that the producer don't see, but when you deal with a more stud, I think it's really important that those people have made their homework and choose the best product on the market. But again, there's probably 20, 25 products available, and I'm sure that all of them have some good quality. Uh, like I said, we found one that was a good fit, worked well, and we kept using it since then. So the last 10 years, we haven't found a better product you know, in all the research we did. Right on. And how many extenders would you guess that you've evaluated over that 10-year period? Dan? Probably uh, 10, 12, at 10 least. And so based on your experience, I know there's there's published recommendations out there, but based on your experience, um, what would you consider to be the maximum shelf life for fresh semen before you would say, you know, we better not use that semen. We, we better get fresh fresh semen in. So interesting. We did, we did some trial on semen age, okay, uh, because we wanted to know, you know, when we have semen, is it three days before, better than four or five days age of semen? Uh, it's not easy to do because you have to do the two or three breeding with the same age of semen. Because if you do the first breeding with day two and the first, second one with day four, you know, what is the, the true? So it's a bit tough to do. And when we did a trial, we were able to compare day two, four, five, and six. Day three, because of our collection process and day of collection, we were not able to always breed sow with day three semen twice or three times. So we had that on day two, four, five, and six. And I was looking at the data this morning before the before the, the, the meeting this afternoon, and there was no difference in performance, okay, and between day two and day six. But it means that it's not only the extender, it's how you preserve your semen, the cooling, you know, the conservation of the semen. But if you have good quality extender, good quality semen from the borsa, no contamination, all those things that have to be done the right way, between day two and six, there was no difference in performance based on letter size and conception rate. Very good. Very good. And may I ask you, because I think this is a really important variable when you're doing research in that area, would you have uh, characterized the uh, the herd in which you did the study or the herds in which you did the study as being kind of average in terms of productivity or above average or well above average? We tried to use barn that are above average, but not always a top barn of the system. Uh, because we want something that re is representative of the system. When we do research for high life, it has to be, it has to mean something for them. Um, but again, when we choose a herd, you know, when you do a trial for four months, things can change over the four month period. But I can say that the performance of the herd that we choose are above average, but not the top herd of the system. Gotcha. And, yeah. and those trials as well, we try to, to find to use big herds, six thousand cell, three thousand cell. So we have a lot of data. Okay, if you do that type of trial in a small herd. It's going to take forever to get enough data. And in those type of trial, we always try to get a lot of salt to make sure that we have meaningful data. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and was the semen that you used in that study, was that blended semen? No, it was, it was, it was bull semen with the same age. Yeah. Same days. Right. But yeah. what, I'm, what I mean semen. is just, it, but the, 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 was it multiple bores? Yeah. Bull semen. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All the all the all the breeding is done with full semen and high life, and most of the boar stuff that we work with anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, the reason I asked that question, I was going to ask you if there was a boar effect, but you can't do that if you're using blended semen. So, okay. Well, I'll come back if you want on boar effect on fertility because we did some work on that as well. Well, let's go there. Let's do okay. that now. 
<laughs> so yeah, so years ago we 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 were in touch with uh, Jennifer Patterson at the uh, U of A, mm-hmm. you know, and they did some work in the U.S. with a group over there looking at single sire mating to try to evaluate the fertility of a boar. Okay, yeah. uh, they were looking for some marker in the semen or in the blood that can say that boar is a good boar, that boar is not a good boar. Beyond the genetic value, the boar yeah. has to be able to breed a cell and make the cell pregnant. Okay, that, yeah. that's important. So, um, but I don't think they have find a, a magic trick to find that by blood or semen testing. So what we have done at High Life, we do single sire mating. So when we receive boar, we do 50 to 60 single sire mating in a 6,000 cell barn. Okay, let's say we have 20 boar that go to the Q barn. We release those boar, we do semen collection, we do those 60 breeding single sire mating, and we look at the conception rate of those cells. Okay, and we found that if the cell has low conception rate, the letter size will be low as well. There's a strong correlation between consumption rate and letter size. So we don't have to wait for the cell to farrow to make yep. a decision. We do the preg check at 28, 30 days. And when we have those 60 breeding, and if the cell bred with those more are below 88% fertility rate, we call the boar. Okay. So we okay. have a process that we were put in place to try to always keep the best boar and eliminate the 10 15% fundamental board that you don't want to carry over for the next two years in your stud because they're going to be those boards that will throw your performance lower. Right on. Yeah. And, and by doing that, by we were able to improve farm rate by about 3-4% and the other size by about 0. 0.4, 0.5. Yeah, wow. So 88% conception rate is what you were aiming for as your break point. Cut off. And again, it depends, you know, if you have a very good index board, it's at 85, there's some judgment call when you do those things and it's not just about, you know, being on a strict rule, but we've been able to play around with that. And honestly, when we started, we had more lower fertility board. And toward the end of our process, after two, three years, we found less, less board that were lower fertility. I don't know why, but we had not that many board that were below that 85, 88% cutoff. You know? Yeah, very good. But still, if you have a board at 70% and that board, you keep it for two years, it's going to produce that many dose per year, bring that many sow, you better get rid of that board. Even though you pay for the board, it was better to get rid of that board and use the best board. Absolutely. Yep. Ab- ab- absolutely. Um, and it's kind of a hidden cost if you're uh, if you're not doing that kind of evaluation. And uh, yeah. And you said what was again, what was the difference in litter size? About 0.4.5 pigs. About 0.4.5. Wow. wow. Yeah. And the farming rate was about three and a half to four percent. If I recall well, I got it here. Yeah. Three and a half to four percent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the next topic then we'll move on to is uh, semen dose concentration. And what did you find in that work, Dan? So we started in 2007-9 to do some testing on the dose of semen. Uh, we were at 2.75 viable sperm at that time at High Life. And we said, right, can we can we go lower? So we did 2 billion versus 2.75, you know. And we did three trials back-to-back, you know, uh, with those two different doses. It was standard estimation at the time. And we had no difference in performance. You know, conception rate, later size were exactly the same. So, so we said two, two is good enough. So the next step we say, can we go to 1.5? So we went in with the child two versus 1.5. And we did with post cervical and standard. So we did both because we were in that process to do standard versus post cervical. So when we did those trials, because we know that by principle, doing post cervical insemination, you should yeah. be able to use lower dose, okay? Yes. Uh, uh, but yeah. we did both ways because some farm were still using standard. We use standard for the gelt. No, but, so we wanted to look at both uh, insemination method with the dose of semen. And again, when we did that, uh, there was no impact on performance to go to 1.5. Even one trial at 1.5, the litter size was better, which 
maybe a bit of a fluke, but at least it was not worse for not sure. Not worse. Yeah. yeah. So we did those trials with the different semen dose, and 1.5 came like the target, you know, uh, to achieve. We even do, we even did 1 billion, uh, and we had no difference in performance. But then we start, we wanted to be careful, right? Because you do research and research farm, but not research farm, but farm that people are more pay attention to detail a bit more, you know. Yeah. Uh, even though it's a 6,000 sow, when you go there, you choose a farm that would be able to do it well. So by default, you choose better management, better yeah. people to do the trial. So uh, we don't want to go to 1 billion because we thought that we may be walking the line a bit on the, the performance issue that we may have if we go too low. But with 1.5, either standard or post-cervical, we are we have no issue on performance. Uh, so when you look at that 1.5 versus the 2.75 we were in 2007, it's almost half. Half, yeah. So when you look at the number of bore you need, you can cut your bore pool by not half, but at least 40%. Yeah. And you keep yeah. your best bore. So in terms of genetic value, you get rid of the low index bore and you get, it's not a good thing for the genetic company that sells you those bore at high price, but yeah. it's, it's it, that's for producer itself, you know, for the bore stud, it's much more efficient. So it's yes. a big value there. Absolutely. A- absolutely. Um, and, and for all kinds of reasons, because you're, uh, not only not paying for more boards, you've also saving on feed, saving on labor, saving on collections, the whole, all the way down the line. So yeah. Yeah, very and, interesting. And what, what we did also, uh, John, at that time, so when we play with the dose of semen, we play with the volume of semen as well. So at 2.75, we were more on 75 ml of dose. When we went to 2 billion, we're at 56. And at one and a half, we're at 45. So at one and a half, we're at 45 and two, we're at 76. Mill. So at one and okay. a half, we're at 40, 56 oh, ml yeah, of uh, semen. And when we did 1 billion, we were at 45 ml. So you changed the the uh, the sperm count by changing the volume of the semen. Yeah. So, uh, okay, gotcha. Okay. No, the ratio is probably not perfect, but at the, because anyway, you, need, you have less sperm, you need less extender. At the same time, you need less of those nutrients to feed the sperm. So, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You uh, you mentioned post-cervical insemination. Let's talk about that a little bit, Dan. And what's your experience been with that? Um, are are you comfortable with it personally? And are you recommending that to your customers? Yeah. So for, uh, first answer: Yes, we are comfortable, and that's what we recommend to our producer to do. Again, standard AI is a good process. It's a well-known process. It can work really well. But uh, when we started to work with post-cervical, it was in 2000, I have to go back to my note, 2000, uh, 2008, I think we did the first trial. 2013, we did the first trial with post-cervical. And uh, at that time, it didn't work really well. Okay, We did a trial where we detect the sow and bred the sow with the boar in front of the sow. So you have to understand that when you do post-cervical, you have to go through the cervix with the catheter. And if the sow is in standing heat, you know she's a bit more solid and the cervix is a bit more tight. So if you don't pay attention when you insert a catheter, you can create more damage if the bore is in front of the cell. So the first trial, the first two trials were not really good. So we were not overly excited about post-cervical at that time. So we went back, consulted with other people and you know people that did the same uh, things as us. They say, no, you need to take the how the bore. You do the heat detection, you wait 20 minutes, the cell is still in heat, you know, even though she's not standing. And then you go back and you do your post-cervical insemination, it's much easier to insert a catheter to the cervix at that time. And we did that and boom, performance were as good or even better. And uh, so in terms of performance, I'm not sending post-cervical to improve performance. Although in some cases it's better, okay? 
So at least you're not going to lose. You can win, but you're not always going to win on performance. What we like about post-surgical is the uh, efficacy of the labor when you do it well. You know, uh, The training has to be done well, but when you do the heat detection, you can do it with the right guys. They do the heat detection. They mark the cell. You go for the coffee break. You come back 20, 30 minutes after, and you start to insert the rod. And most of the people can do it after that. You know, And you don't have to wait for the cell to take up the semen. You can just push the semen through the cervix. It's much faster. And you have less uh, backflow, things like that. So like I said, performance-wise, we don't set it to improve performance, although we've seen improvement in some cases. We set it as a mean to be more efficient labor-wise when you do breeding. And I will say that 90% of people that have tried, they stay with it, okay? The only issue we have is that we are not confident yet to do the guilt, okay, with post-cervical. I know we have one farm now in Manitoba that is doing it with a really good breeder, and it's working well. From what I've seen, it's working well. But to implement that in all the farm with the labor issue we have sometime on the gilt, it's a bit tougher to insert the catheter through the cervix on those gilt that have never farrow, you know. Uh, you have to be more diligent. Uh, but we are trying now a new rod, which is kind of a balloon that you put to the cervix. And then when you press, there's a balloon that go to the cervix and inflate and open the cervix, and then the cement will go through. So it's not very, it's not invasive. So you don't go through the cervix with a, with a piece of a, with a rod. You just open the balloon. And then we are trying that in two farms in Quebec right now. And we want to do a trial side by side in one of our farms as well, either in Quebec or at High Life to evaluate that new way of doing post-cervical with guilt. So pretty interesting concept. Right. And just to go back to the work that you did on, um, on dose, semen dose concentration, was did that trial in involve gilts as well and was there any difference with gilts compared to mature sows no there was no difference when we do those trials we tried to took all the sow parity in the farm and we look at semen dose by parity and we yep. have enough sow to compare and there was no difference on performance there was no uh, difference. For, okay for a gilt versus a wean sow gotcha good very good so the, the other comment i want to make on post cervical you know the only Disadvantage is the cost of the rod. You know, normally you can buy a standard rod for 20 to 35 cents, depending if you use an extension or not, you know, but a post-cervical rod with between 50 and 60 cents. So double the price. But if you look at the cost per sow per year, it's not a crazy cost. Uh, and price of those post-cervical rod has come down a lot. Uh, on top of doing post-cervical, we have tried different rod, different type of post-cervical rod. Uh, we haven't done trial on all the rod on the market, but we did a trial couple of years ago with three different popular rod uh, side by side. And it was amazing to see the difference in performance. Uh, there was a clear difference between the three rod. One of them was the lowest, one is, was in the middle, and one was the best in terms of farring rate and meter size. Uh, and there was a clear difference when we look at the stat, the p-value was significant. So um, I think the type of the rod, uh, the rigidity of the catheter, when you go through the cervix, if it's too rigid, you can create more damage. If it's too soft, you can kink it. It's not going to go through. So uh, the opening at the tip, you know, where the semen will go out, the length of the catheter, all those things uh, are important. Uh, so now we are trying to test other rod to see if we can find a better one. There's new one on the market that have the, the lube on it. So you don't have to put any lubrification. It comes with the rod on the bag. So people like it. So we want to test those one as well. So there's still some to learn, but it's not. It seems that not all the rods are the same or as good. Gotcha. Right on. Right on. Okay. Let's uh, let's wrap up our 
this, our time is moving along well. We, we still have time, so we're not at, close to the end of our time, but but time has been moving on. So let's, you've, uh, you've also listed on here a topic you wanted to cover, which was breeding strategies. So what exactly did you mean by that, Dan, and what kind of information do you have for us on that? It's, it's coming from question from, from our producer, right? Customer, they say, should I do this? Is it good to do this or that? You know, And one of them was two versus three breeding. You know, uh, mm. Some farm, they say they're going to breed the sow twice after weaning. And even though she's in eat the third time, they won't touch her. Yes. And, and yeah. I've always been a bit careful with that because if it, you do it really well, maybe the third time is not needed. But what we found in some case, you're missing on performance. So we did a trial on that, looking at the sow with two breeding, but that wanted a third one, but we didn't do the third one. And some that wanted the third one, and we did the third one. And when I say the third breeding is the sow has to be rock solid. It has to right. be a good okay. standing heat. If the sow is at the end of the heat, don't breed her. Okay. So we compared the one that received two but wanted three, and the one that received three and wanted three. And there was a difference in performance about 0.5 pigs for those that received the third dose and 4% firing rate. Okay. So kind of a huge difference in my mind to do that yeah. third breeding on the sow that are really in heat. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the best sell of the group were the one that had two breeding and wanted two. You know, the one that are in heat, yeah. 24 hours, you do two breeding, day four, day five, they don't want the third one, they were the best of the group, okay? Yeah. But if the yeah. sow wants yeah. a third breeding and you make sure she's in heat, for us, you have to breed that sow. So, oh, sorry, go ahead, Dan, please. No, go ahead with your question, John, that's fine. Yeah, I was going to ask you on that. So if you're looking at the third uh, mating versus not, is that a reflection that you are catching the first heat later versus earlier, or is it that there's a longer period of being in heat? I think it's a longer period of being heat. You know, some sow okay. uh, will be in, in heat longer for whatever reason based on their what happened in lactation. But your question, come back to the fact, should we skip the first breeding if we do a third breeding? So, Normally, it's a day four. Day four is the first breeding in most of the farm. So we did some trial skipping day four and just doing day oh, five really? yeah. and six if they were in heat. Because we have some customers that do that. If they know day three she was not in heat, she so start on day four, they skip, and they do day five and day six if she needed. So they save a dose of semen. Because day four, most of the time, if you do day five, six, it's probably a lost dose. Because we know the ovulation is at the last third of the estrus process. So we did a trial on that. First trial worked really well. No difference in performance. So we said, ah, maybe we should do it. But it's about people. You have to make sure you do a good heat detection. And so we did another same trial in another farm, and we failed on performance. So on, it was not as good, okay, because maybe just missing that start of the heat or those type of things that has to be done really well. So I think the people that do the heat detection are really important to apply that type of uh, uh, method when you skip day four breeding. Some people do it with good success. Some people, we tell them, hey, if you're at 70, 90% firing rate, don't skip any breeding. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, right. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. really important. Yeah. Don't compound your, your challenges right on. Good. Well, Dan, I'm, I'm, if you don't mind, we, we have a, a few minutes left. And I just like to, uh, you know, a topic that is pretty hot in the US right now, great interest, is the whole thing related to, um, gestation housing and Prop 12 and the whole thing. And I think, am I correct? I might be wrong on this, but that Canada, um, the new animal care code is requiring the elimination of gestation stalls at 
some point in the future. Is that correct? Have I got yeah, that right? The cutoff date is 2029, but it's not elimination of gestation stall. It's uh, after four weeks of breeding. You know, so that's the okay. the group all saying after 28 to 35 days. You know, there's not a clear date. You know, uh, yeah. the prop 12, as you know, it's another step above that where you cannot have the sow more than five six hours into a crate you know and not more than 24 hours for the first whatever how many days so you breed the sow you have to go back and pen and for the next breeding you have to come back and crate because it's easier to breed sound crate and then they go back and pen after uh, in canada we have for sure some people that are looking into it because they're with california requesting that new uh, to get meat over there uh, the packers will if they want to have access to that market with a premium, if I think there's going to be a premium yeah. for a short period. After that, the premium will probably disappear because, as you know, there's going to be something yeah. else that will be requested at that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So some people are looking into that, but we haven't seen a lot of farm in Quebec being able to do it right now. The challenge is to breed those sow into a crate and move them back to a pen and bring them back to a crate for breeding. Uh, so uh, that's that's the thing we'll have to figure out a bit. But there's, there's a way to do it. But we haven't had any uh, farm... Too much set up on that right now anyway until the first of the year there's a transition for california they accept they are still accepting group housing the normal one for the meat but by december january 1st i think it has to be prop 12 regulation and the other issue we have is the 24 square feet most of the barn we have built on group housing are between 19 and 22 square feet the 24 uh, you have to do it by reducing your herd inventory because uh, unless you expand your barn, but those they're expanding a barn in Canada, it's not people. People don't look into that with the financial issue that we have the last two years. So it's that's the other issue. The twenty-four square feet is a bit of a not a lot of farm are set up for that in Canada. Right. Do you do within your client base? Then do you have anybody who is um, weaning into breeding stalls, and as soon as mating is completed? then they're put into pens immediately. Do you have many customers doing that? Yeah, more and more. There's a lot of uh, large dynamic group we call, you know, group of 250, 250, 200 sow. Uh, they breed within five days or within, before a week, they get moved into a pen, into a dynamic group. Or you can do it with a, a system like the Gestal Maximus smarter group as well. Uh, some people are doing that. The challenge is that the 21 days eat return detection, but you have those bore system, which are not, 100% perfect in my mind. But if again, if you have a good breeder, a good performance barn, uh, it's going to work well. If you're crappy on breeding and you have 20% return, that's going to be a hard one to do redetection at 21 days. Yeah, it's going to make make a bad situation worse. Yeah, thanks thanks for that. And I, I appreciate that, uh, given that uh, you see a lot of different um, uh, options out there. So we're wrapping up. And just if you look at the, all you've talked about today, and there's a lot, thank you very much, a lot of really good uh, research and suggestions that you've had. Are there specific take-home messages you'd like to leave with our listeners? No, like I said, I touched a lot of different points. Uh, the use of hormone is also something that people are tending to use, but I think it's, uh, it's uh, we say in French, it's a plaster on the jump the board. It's something you do to mask a bad management strategy. When you use PG600 on guilt at weaning, we did trial on that. You lose on either size. Those guilt with PG600 will have one pick less on the next litter. Even though they breed back a bit faster, you don't gain anything. You better feed yourself well, have a good nutrition program, good body condition, uh, the wean to service, full feeding. Some people don't recommend that anymore. 
on the wing guilt, I think it's really important. And because it's hard to manage guilt versus other parity, we do it on all the cell. There's a bit of feed wastage. I got that, but I'm a bit afraid when people say don't over, don't feed more than five six pounds after after weaning. I th- I think that extra one or two pounds you can give to those cells is really important. So all those things matter a lot. And I think the issue we have is labor. Yeah? So labor is really important. All the things I've talked about are often related to people that do the work. So we can have the best equipment, the best technology, the best semen concentration, the people that are doing the work. So the training of your people at the barn is really important. And it's not there. No pregnant cell, no pigs to wean. So I think the, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You have to find a way to make things easy for them. Uh, not automated, but find a way to, like the PCI is a nice way to implement the process that's easy to follow for people. And once they get trained, it's working really well. So Yeah, very good. Good. Working with nature and not against it, Piglets Fed AX3 see significant and improved feed efficiency. Producers know the reality of needing to reduce antibiotic and zinc use. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in barn performance, piglet health, and minimizes the need for zinc in the diet. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. That's www.protekta.com. It's time for our famous three. Swine Veterinary Partners offers a full range of animal health and production services to Canadian pork producers. We approach health management through personalized solution with concern for profitability while taking into account performance and the well-being of your animals. We like to finish our uh, our conversation, Dan, with the, the three questions. And so the, the first question is, is there a, a book uh, or another source of information that you find particularly useful uh, in swine management, swine nutrition that you would recommend to our listeners? I'm not a big book reader. Uh, I, I like to pick up on different things. So magazine, website, things like that. When, it, when I find something interesting, I read it. And I'm not the guys that will take a book or take something and always read the same thing. Uh, I have a lot of magazine that I receive. We have a lot on the net right now. So I try to gather information here and there and yeah. uh, take what I think is of value. And then if I need to go a bit deeper, I'll do it. Right. And may if I can editorialize there just a little bit, Dan, I think that's a great suggestion for students who are just uh, looking to get into the pig industry, a great way for them to become familiar with the industry and learn what's going on out in the barn, so to speak, is to have uh, subscriptions to those electronic magazines and newsletters. They get a lot of very good information and very practical information. So thank you for that. So then the next one is uh, probably, if, if you're not reading pig books, you may not be reading general books, but do you have a book that you have read uh, that you found sort of had a, a big impact on you or not really, because well, no, you're not I, a book guy. I, I, I like to read books to be uh, entertained, and I like uh, sport biography. So I read the one on Andre Agassi, Sidney Crosby. I like sport. Uh, I'm, uh, I like wine, so I read book on wine. But when I say book on wine, it's more to learn about the region of producing wine, France, Italy, because I, I, I collect wine. And I like to buy a lot of wine, so I like to read about wine a bit. Uh, but I like the sport stuff a lot, you know, the true story of somebody that did something like Andre Agassi was amazing when i read that book 
uh, or Sidney Crosby with a hockey fan, so I like Sidney Crosby. So those type of books, Laurence René Tardif, which is a football player that played in NFL for the Chief, he's a doctor, read his book as well. So that's the type of book I like to read about person, sports person, mostly. Yeah, I don't know if you've read the book. If you like hockey books, the most profound hockey book that I ever read was written by Roy McGregor, who's fairly well known. He's written a lot of books in sports, and, and I think it's called Home Game. And it's the story of a, a father and a, and a boy growing up in the game of hockey and what they learned along the way, both the father and the son. It's yeah. uh, If you get a chance to read it, Dan, I, if you like hockey and if you like hockey books, it's a great one. Okay, and and then the, the final question is, is you look around the industry, you meet lots of people, you know, lots of people working in the industry. What is it in your mind that sets apart those people who have achieved the highest level of success in swine nutrition, swine production, swine management? Uh, I think it's uh, working hard for sure. You know, you have to work hard, especially when you start a business like we did. You know, you have to put the time to make it work. But I think for me, it's about the people, the network. What I like the most about my job, and sometimes people say you travel a lot, you meet a lot of people, you go to conference, but about the networking and meeting other people like you, John, people from the U.S. We are not involved in the U.S. directly, but I've been able to connect with a lot of people in the U.S. that brought me a lot as well. So I think connecting with people and the passion uh, it's, it's hard to say I have a passion about pigs. You know, some people don't get that. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's, not about, it's not just about the pigs. It's about the industry, the people I've worked with over the years. Uh, because, you know, I think education is important. And you know about that because you've been at Iowa State, you've been a professor, you've been a, a guy that have promote uh, graduate uh, study for people. But I think after that, even though you did all of that, if you don't have the passion and the work ethics and the connection, uh, you won't have, you may have success, but it's not to be, depending on what you want to do, but to be, to have a business, to be an entrepreneur, the networking, the passion and the hard work. Is- yeah, that's a great point, uh, Dan. That doesn't always come up, you know, and yet when you think of the people that you work with, that you enjoy working with the most, they generally are pretty passionate about what they do, right? That's a, that's a good point. I think that's a great one. That's a great uh, a point to uh, finish our podcast with. Uh, so I'm John Patience. We've been talking to Dan Boussier from uh, Group Ceres. And uh, thank you very much, Dan, and have a good rest of your day. Thanks all. Thanks a lot.